0: Food is everywhere, deeply political, deeply contentious to change. But this is a sector that, over the next 10 years, will have to change radically to live, to adapt, and become resilient in a climate disruptive world.
1: I'm Andrea Learned, and welcome to Living Change, a podcast exploring unconventional climate leadership. I talk to people who've converted their personal values into business and policy decisions in a load of different sectors. I believe that the more we're visible about these changes, the more we chart the way for other leaders wanting to create new social norms. Today, I'm speaking with London-based sustainability advisor, Mike Berry. Mike is driving real change in the corporate world, working with international businesses, charities, think tanks, and startups, and helping them achieve a greener model of profitable business practices. I first met Mike in person at Climate Week Paris in 2015, the year leading up to the signing of the Paris Agreement at COP21. As ever, we've kept in touch on social media. Looking back on season one, I've struggled to find leaders to speak with who own their leadership voices, are seen living change in their own lives, and then reflect that truth in their corporate policies and practices. I wanted to conclude this season with Mike because he's pushing action and results with corporate leaders and having climate impact success. He helped launch and implement Marks & Spencer's groundbreaking sustainability program, Plan A, because, as he'd say, there is no Plan B for the one world we have. So we had to start there.
0: Oh my goodness, we are going back into the depths of time. (laughs) 2000, I joined Marks & Spencer, 20-odd years ago. And it's it was amazing. I was recruited then by the Gen Chief Financial Officer, Alison Reid, CFO. She said, Mike, confession to make, no one in the business really gives too much of a monkeys about environmental issues, but I do personally. I'm a sponsor on the board. Interestingly, one woman on a board of men who all look like me. There we are, but learning there for us all. And she sponsored me and she said, took me under a, a wing and said, look, Mike, um, I'll give you air cover. I'll help you navigate around the business. But you have no line manager and no budget. You sink or swim, get out there and sort this green stuff out. Wow. And that's what I did with a good friend, Roland Hill, who'd been in m 20 or 30 years. And we sort of started to build um, uh, confidence in the business that we could do something better, uh, brought lots of things together, listened to a lot of people, built a plan Brilliant chief exec, Sir Stuart Rose, came into the business to save it from takeover and said, I want to be the world's best on this. Wow. Go do. Mm-hmm. So we went from one extreme to another literally overnight, developed and launched something called Plan A because there is no Plan B for the one planet we've got, 100 commitments in 100 days, 17 versions written and brought bought into by the business. And when you look back to 2007 when we launched it, it sort of saw the future. Mm-hmm. So we didn't call it Scope 3, but we said we have to take responsibility for the supply chains that make our products several billion things, clothing, food items that m sells every year, and 32 million customers and how they use them. So we didn't call it Scope 3, but we were stepping forward. We saw business case, this had to make sense for the business in terms of efficiency, motivation for its people, differentiation of its brands, resilience in its supply chain, and ultimately bringing new products and services to the marketplace. So we saw that coming, we saw that need for integration, so everybody did it. And even when I was director of the business reporting to the chief exec, I never had a, more than a team of 10 reporting to be in the center out of 83,000 colleagues because it had to be owned by everybody, not by the specialists. We saw the need for partnership that MS could not change the world, things like Palmol, but seven stages as a liquid commodity away from M&S. How could you possibly change that world on your own? So you had to stand with your big competitors, Tesco, Sainsbury's, et etc. So much of what we call best practice now, we saw not saying we were perfect, I say I've got gray hair for a reason, <laughs> and crucially. I decided not just to launch that plan, but to stay. You know, lots of headhunters said, leave Mike, your stars, you know, in our little village in the ascendancy, you're famous for launching the plan. Leave before it all goes wrong. Right. And I, and you remember Mike had brown hair then. So Mike said, No, Mike's gonna stay. Mike's gonna have a pop at sort of down in the trenches of making a mistake. And it was hard, mm. really hard. The business went through lots of commercial challenges. Lots of learning. you know. I look back now and think I've done so many different things differently, which is what I can now take to my consulting base and to the companies I sort of advise now. But we learn from doing, and I'm really glad I stayed to see that through as well. So that's where I am now, three years into just consulting on my own.
1: So, the interesting thing, if you look at your website, you've got it broken down into why, what, how, the way that you're kind of walking Mm -hmm. your clients through. So, I guess, give me an example of a client who comes to you and and what that means.
0: The beauty of working on your own is you can pick and choose which client you work with. So, you know, one example, I work with some of the world's biggest FMCG companies. They don't come to me for me to tell them how to implement today's plan. Brilliant. They know how to do that. What's next generation? What's over the horizon? What's sustainable business 2.0? You know, if you start having a conversation about these big, scary topics like degrowth, what would it mean to sell less physical stuff? Wow. Wow. That's really (laughs) hard to get your head around. How do you start to create a truly integrated value chain, which is adult-to-adult relationships between the buyer and the suppliers, as opposed to parent-child thing now? How do we go through radical shifts in terms of how we use data and digital to track and trace these trillions of items that we consume as a society around the world that come from millions of locations that go to billions of consumers? You ain't doing it with a spreadsheet, but you might with AI, big data, remote sensing, et cetera. So they come to me for these radical shifts forward. Other people will come to me and say, we're a startup, Mike, You know, we we want you to help us dock into the world of established business for funding, uh, for growth plans for expansion other people will come to me and say mike you know you've got lots of experience about bringing business together those partnerships that mns spoke about work with us to bring a sector together uk retailers uk hospitality uk food and drink or the climate pledge to get all these multiple very different businesses at very different stages on the journey to work collaboratively together towards something like net zero so again intellectually even though i'm 55 now Every day I'm learning something new because of this constant stimulation from the marketplace, which shows people do want to change.
1: These clients are coming to you as organizations or corporations. But I'm curious, going back to what you were talking about with Marks and Spencer, how it was one person, right, the CFO who saw it and kind of brought it. I'm curious, is there always somebody internally who's kind of pushing the corporation to like, we should talk to this Mike Berry guy? Is there anything like that going on?
0: So, so yes and no. So what you've got now, 15 years on from an M&S launch plan A, is there's much more coherency in much more big businesses that they need to do at least some of this, let's call it ESG, because that's what most businesses are doing, ESG. Yep. Yep. Which I'm slightly sniffy about. It's risk, it's compliance, it's the billy basics. It's not sustainable businesses we want it to be. But there's a board-level sponsor, there's a head of, there's a director, there's a chief sustainability officer. So gone are the days when sort of a loose cannon like I could bumble around the business building a little guerrilla army to change it from within. I don't think that's really happening now. Okay. I think the big risk now is complacency that a lot of boardrooms have said, well, I've appointed the chief sustainability officer. I've given them a budget, a team of 10 people, 20. They've got a report. You know, I'll turn up once or twice a year at the board and have a chat with them about it job done surely mike <laughs> and actually in a world where we're seeing this tra- a shift from compliance to transformation that's dangerous because again we've seen it in the car industry and we, we haven't got time to discuss mr musk and twitter and okay. tesla. <laughs> but the the serious point here is the incumbent car industry even five six years ago was laughing at the scaling of electrification mm. they thought tesla was niche they thought you know a small number of people buy into it But the future was basically about leaner diesel cars, more efficient diesel cars. And it's only when both society and policymakers and the innovation that came out of Tesla said it can be and will be different, they've really scrabbled to keep up. Now, all those incumbent car companies have got advanced plans now to respond, but they've made it harder for themselves by being asleep at the wheel. I've seen the same in the food industry in the response to the radical shift in how we'll have to produce and consume food. The fashion industry, asleep at the wheel, thinking it's still all about fast fashion, single use. And that's my concern, is that we've got ESG directors and everybody's thinking, enough done. And actually, that ESG role, that chief sustainability officer role now is head of transformation. You've got to take this linear, unsustainable business model, all the wrong things in the wrong ways, within 10 years, to a radically different model which requires different skill sets than just being understanding all the different ESG standards, Mm -hmm. how to write, to report and have a chat with a, a campaign group. You've got to lead internal change and disruption. That's very different.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because I'm actually, as I watch, you know, LinkedIn and what's happening, I'm seeing lots of sustainability directors or VP sustainability being, you know, resigning or, you know, kind of shifts in that and thinking, wait, I was watching that person and they were doing a pretty good job, right? Mm-hmm. So it's I'm, it's really interesting because it seems like some corporations are kind of dropping the person that brought them this far and then hoping for something. And frankly, I'm watching people be put into these positions that are like more a communications or a public effect. And I'm just like, what? Yeah. Anyway, I'm kind of, what are, are you seeing? That, is there like a seven-year
0: stint and then they don't know what to do or I I think it's lots of things. Two or three observations. One is that I think we've seen an explosion in the the size of the ESG or sustainable business job market. Brilliant. Yes. And I get some of my old generation who were there at the beginning, like me, getting a bit sniffy about it. You know, what do these kids know? Yeah. You know, know, it's only those wise old dogs that, and I think that's rubbish. I think we need new blood and new ideas. And inevitably, in that rapidly expanding cohort, I talked about myself in a village. which was actually a hamlet. <laughs> but we're now in a sustainable business town or even small-sized city. We want it to be a metropolis. We want it ultimately to be a country of sustainable business professionals because everybody's doing it. And inevitably, as that group of people grow that play in this space, there'll be some duff hires. You know, inevitably, there'll be one or two that don't make it. There'll be 90%, 95% who, like me, learned on the job. Yeah, yeah. And came better from doing. So, you know, we, we have to reflect on that. The second thing is there is clearly in some businesses a difference between what the board want, which is just some good, safe ESG risk management, please, and a brave, driven person who's saying, no, we need to be so much further ahead, boss. And the boss is saying, nah. <laughs> no, I've got you on a good salary. You mind your own business and stay in your little box over here. And right, some people are turning around and say, not for me. I'm off. I've tried to change this business for two or three years' time. It's not shifting. I'm off to a better place. I am seeing that. But I'm also seeing then on the more positive side, more and more people on LinkedIn who've got had a core commercial profession, been in HR, or finance, or marketing, procurement, you name it, and are now coming, not just to people like me, but many other entities and saying, Tell me about the sustainability thing. I uh, want to make a difference. Okay. I've just spent 20 years trying to flog more stuff. There's more to life than that, surely. They want a job with a purpose and pragmatically, the this is the way that the wind is blowing in terms of careers. So, you know, we are getting an expanding cohort coming in from the other direction as well. Mm. And my final point is, I think in a lot of businesses, this chief transformation officer role that we're talking about is best filled from within your own organization. Mm-hmm. So the person that leads the transformation is somebody who knows it inside out, has got the confidence of the C-suite, they've led some significant division of it. Then number two is a brilliant, skilled technical specialist on the world of sustainability and climate change and biodiversity, circularity, human rights. But the top person is there because they know how to pull the levers to get change done. hmm and again, I, I sense that a number of businesses have been out, they brought a technical specialist in, good, and then they've said to the technical specialist, what do you know about my business? And the person said, nothing. nothing.
1: Yeah.
0: I know a lot about climate change, I know nothing about how your business operates. So I think we need to be fishing a slightly different pool for talent to drive things forward in business as well.
1: Okay. That's a great point. One of the things that kind of going back to the ESG versus sustainable business, you're talking, it's a lot about risk management, right? And is that the reason that people within the corporations or even the corporations in PR or whatever, aren't getting louder about what they're doing because they're kind of like, well, I can't say this because I can't. So the risk management side, is that you know, kind of hampering what could be bolder?
0: Yes. And, and, and I, I think it's, Again, because most C-suites look like me, old, white, gray-haired fellas, don't yeah. we? So we know what we know. and We've been around for 30, 40 years. And, you know, it's exactly the same as happened with digital transformation. These are the people that were running Blockbuster when Netflix was, you know, rushing past them. These were the people that were running physical retailers when Amazon Google were coming from nowhere to disrupt them. There's no reason to think they're not just as complacent when it comes to systemic disruption. That's just the way, the, the way that a lot of the current leaders and incumbents are. So I do think there's a significant risk management compliance mentality in the C-suite. Okay. Now, the amount of stuff you have to comply with is much larger than even three years ago. New regulations in Europe, in the UK, SEC in the States. You've just got to fill more forms in, more booklets. Mm-hmm. But that in itself is dangerous. Because, again, if you dissect the world of Tesla, to draw an example, against most ESG metrics, and we're on to sort of a, a Musk preoccupation here, it scores poorly. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because it ain't great on some things like labor rights and human rights and water in the way that it probably is through climate because it's pushing electric electrification. But there is a risk. We've become so obsessed with meeting all these standards and this alphabet soup of, mm-hmm. of, of, of compliance We've, Get ever bigger reports, and that breeds complacency in the boardroom. So, well, I'm not at risk, mm-hmm. and you're a meat business. And some of this, these, not just plant-based alternatives, but the emergence of cellular laboratory-grown cultivated meat, it's mm-hmm. probably five years away from being a real scale disruptor of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. But it will come. It will come. And I think, uh, uh, you know, we've got a meat industry globally that generally is still in the foothills of doing a little bit of SCOPE 3 measurement, Mm -hmm. not reporting it publicly, not setting goals to reduce it, not experimenting in these radically different ways we'll be consuming protein in the future. Mm -hmm. So that's the next wave of disruption in in the complacent marketplace.
1: Before we continue with the conversation, I wanted to tell you about a podcast I love, An Honourable Profession brought to you by the team at New Deal. It's the go-to podcast for learning about the rising stars in American politics. Past guests include Pete Buttigieg, Jason Kander, Senator Alex Padilla, and Mandela Barnes. These leaders share their innovative policy ideas as well as their inspiring stories about their path into public office. In a world of soundbites and attack ads, an honorable profession is a thoughtful conversation from the front lines of American democracy. I love finding conversations that give me hope that we can address climate change and the policy challenges of our time. Tune in to learn more and listen to an honorable profession everywhere podcasts are found. So you bring up food systems, and that is an area that I see you popping up. So I believe mm-hmm. you were part of an event both at Climate Week and at COP27 with a f- mm-hmm. kind of future of food, whatever that you can yeah, tell the me about that. Yeah, future food movement. Yeah, and so I'm curious about how you got into that. It seems like that's a sector that you're really looking at. I believe that might come out of Marks and Spencer, but tell me a little bit about how food has become a focus for you and then what you're seeing in terms of are people interested in collaborating? Are some of these old white guys getting on board?
0: So, so food is fascinating because it's an existential sector. You know, within reason, we could live without a car. We could live without right. passion, couldn't we? We could li- even live without this if we had to. We do. could, we could, we could, if we ourselves. <laughs> but food, we all depend upon. But then you take a step back and say it's the most polluting sector on the planet more greenhouse gas emissions, a third of greenhouse gas emissions, 40% of all calories produced on the planet never reach a human mouth, mm-hmm. Yet 800 million people go to bed starving every night, it's insanity, biodiversity loss, soil loss, human rights abuse, 600 million smallholders living in poverty, it literally through any lens is not, it's a system that's not fit for purpose, but then you've got a double whammy because it's uniquely vulnerable to the problem it causes, extremes of weather, rain, floods, heat, destroying livelihoods, crops, yields, quality at a time when the global population is going up. And yet we sat there as well with war in Ukraine, reminding us that the energy system can be weaponized, mm. so can the food system. Mm-hmm. And again, I think we are hugely complacent on a geopolitical basis about the control of not just old-fashioned fossil fuel assets, mm-hmm. but who makes the solar panels, who makes winds, who's got the critical metals out there that we need, and who's got food, who's got the wheat, and who's got the water to produce it. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of geopolitics, and I think part of Biden's response with the Inflation Reduction Act in the States is partly because he believes it's the right thing to do, but it's partly the next great jostling of power between Europe and China and the States about green jobs, who controls what, uh, in a world that's going to be falling out with itself more than it was in the in, in the not too distant past. So all around us, this great game is is emerging around food. And then the third part of the food thing is we started to touch on a little earlier. We didn't traditionally have the solutions we need to do something different about it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And by solutions, I don't just mean high-tech cellular meat. though that's part of the, uh, the thing. How do you get extension support to 600 million smallholders to run the hectare of land differently? Yeah. Now, some of that's through smartphones, and some of it is about human interaction and support. Some of it's about subsidies. So the, there is a whole plethora of systems change that we need in the food system, which is different when it, than the, the car industry. Within reason, the car industry is quite simple. Yeah, You had a diesel car, electric. How you refuel it is quite a bit different in terms of behaviour change, but it's one thing that needs to change. Yeah. Food is everywhere. Yeah. Deeply political, mm-hmm. deeply contentious to change. But this is a sector that, over the next 10 years, will have to change radically to live, to adapt, and become resilient in a climate disruptive world.
1: Yeah. And it kind of, Going back to talking about scope three and just corporations sort of now going, oh, scope three or whatever stage they're at, the food, that's the thing for me in terms of climate influence, right? That's my umbrella. Mm-hmm. And the, and then also in terms of living change, like what if more corporate leaders were kind of public about eating less meat? Anyway, the scope three aspects of this and then the climate influence. I'm just kind of curious if you're seeing levers, like if, you know, if, if. More corporations came out and said, we're going to move to a plant-based, I mean, how could we get this rolling so that the corporations have some impact on government and vice versa to move this yeah. forward more
0: quickly? And, and, and this is where the, the food system struggled in the past, is to get that coherent voice across the industry to say, we're all participating in a failing system. None of us can change on our own, even the world's biggest food companies. We all need to work together on this. We need then a collective conversation with politicians who I think generally are very complacent about the food system. Yes. I don't think many political leaders spend much time thinking about food. Agreed. Um, certainly in Western marketplaces. And I think we need to step back. People like David Navarro have been doing a brilliant job with the UN um, umbrella. Of trying to create dialogues. So rather than trying to impose Western-oriented technology solutions on everybody to see the future of food. Food's a deeply emotional issue, what you consume, how you produce it, the heritage, the terroir, you know, what, what makes land unique. And yet no one is, is, is sort of gathering people together for that big conversation. They're having conversations about individual issues, mm-hmm. palm oil, soy, plastics, important, all of them. Mm-hmm but they're all less than the sum of the parts.
1: So what would it take to break out of that complacency? To really, what would it take? What would you in a dream see in all of your observation and your collaborations? What would it take to get people on board and like, oh my gosh, and acting really quickly?
0: Well, let let me start with a nightmare rather than a dream. (laughs) I I, I think the current cadre of leaders, political, financial, and corporate, need bad things to happen first before they get off their complacent backsides Mm to drive things forward. So it it will be, and we start to see the first inklings of it this summer with impacts on wheat yields in China, in India, in Pakistan, in France, in Canada, right across the globe, wherever you looked, it was starting to get harder to produce it. Now, there's resilience in the system. The rain's come back. People snap, production comes back a bit. But I think there's, it will take another three to five years for something to go badly wrong with the availability of food. And again, as, as the UK security system, something called MI5 says, we're never more than four square meals away from insurrection, certainly uh-huh. Western marketplaces. And people need to understand that, again, how fragile... The food system is again. We've seen it in the UK in the last twenty years with well, mad cow disease, foot and mouth, mm-hmm. where a lorry driver strike where the lorries block the roads because the price of fuel at the time laughably small compared to today. Right. But the food couldn't get through. Yeah. And there's only enough food in the country for the next three or four days. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you begin to understand the vulnerability of food. Now, all this was okay in the neoliberal settlement that we had from you know. 1990 through to 20, mid, the mid-2010s, when everything, everybody was harmoniously selling everything to everybody else. There was, res, there was redundancy and resilience in the system. You know, If I can't get it from here, I'll go to there. Now you've got geopolitical falling out, people sort of holding on to what they've got. Yeah. You've got climate crisis nipping away at yields and production. You've got the vulnerabilities we've seen with the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. How easy it is to bring the global supply system to a to halt.
1: So how... That's I mean that thread has been amazing and it's so interesting to hear but how do you get corporations like what is the dream like in a dream what would happen so that it wasn't 3 to 5 years
0: <laughs> yeah. so 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 realistically the leaders of the world's food industry the the top 30 brands retailers and the top 30 manufacturers or producers of of, of raw materials have got to sit down and say. There is nothing to be won individually in a burnt earth, yep. not in any system, but a lot of the food system. Mm-hmm. We need to get in a room. Now, there's been partly that sort of happened at COP27. It started to happen very not. Yep. It, it happened tentatively at Davos with the World Economic Forum. It's happened at the Consumer Goods Forum where I did a lot of work with, with M&S. Mm-hmm. But it's still single issue. It's yep. not this systems. Now, the scary thing about systems is that we've grown up in this atomized neoliberal system where you stick to your knitting. You're specialist. Yes, design, you yes. Do that. I do this. You do that. Yep. And the ability of today's leaders to conceptualize that they are dependent on so many different moving parts, political, societal, technology-wise, is really hard mm-hmm. to do. Mm-hmm. So my dream is those 30, and I'm sad to say, predominantly men, oh, need to get we together. Could, we could talk a lot longer a about that. <laughs> a whole different topic. A different topic. Well, no, it's not a different topic. It's very, it's it's ve- very relevant yeah. to why we've got the problem we've got. too much time than we have. Yes, yes. But we need to get in a room. And I wouldn't bring political leaders in straight away, because I think just the industry needs to accept. It needs to change. And a lot of the change we need is voluntary. Yes. And some of it is political. Yes. Make sure there's a common level playing field and subsidies aligned as well.
1: So we've got to get going. But do you feel that the conversations that you're having on LinkedIn, are you starting to, is your influence starting to get people talking? And are you somebody that people are sort of circling to help potentially break this blog jam on this topic? Is there hope?
0: I, I see lots of conversations now on LinkedIn. Again, Great. You know, it's I see it's so much better than it was. And I think for most business professionals now, you can get a very good, coherent discussion going on there. Great. But it's a discussion. Mm-hmm. It is not the place where decisions are ultimately made. Yeah. And I've mentioned places like Davos and the Consumer Goods Forum and COP27, COP28 to come. That's where we need the official convening and the official commitment to change.
1: So- I would like to continue this conversation because I would like to understand what needs to happen and see if we can get more people to work together to make that happen at COP28. And it it
0: does. And I I think, you know, there was the, the food systems tent in COP27. The people that were part of it did a brilliant job. Yeah. But there were too few of them. They lacked the influence they need. We need real weight of numbers and turnover and capability in that room as well to drive things forward. Yeah. COP28 is a possibility.
1: Yeah. Well, oh, thank you so much for your time. This has been a fantastic conversation and I'm, i I love any chance to talk to you. So it's wonderful to be able to record this and, and spread this with the world. And you've got a lot of climate influence and I'm really appreciative that you're out there on LinkedIn and just keeping these conversations going. So thank you so
0: much for your time, Mike. And thank you. And I would say to anybody listening to this, I don't care whether you're on the first year of your career or the 35th year or whatever it is. For, for me, we're all putting our shoulders to the wheel of the change that we need. And we've all got to work together to get it. And again, there's there's a, occasionally a few little egos out there of individuals who want to be bigger and more prominent than others. Crap. Yeah. You know, we all need to be part of this. We've all got solutions to bring and weight to bring to the change we need. Yeah. So thank you for completing this
1: call. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike, and take care and we'll be in touch. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thank you. Keep well.
1: Thanks to Mike Berry for a fascinating conversation and thanks to everyone who took time to talk with me for season one. Each guest represented one of my strongest calls to action for developing climate influence. Own your leadership voice, be seen living your values and get louder in amplifying them. The amazing humans I talked with this season operate from this truth. The point is not to make themselves famous. The point is to forward change and perhaps inspire a few of their influential peers to consider doing the same. That's how we change the social norms that will make a huge climate difference. And memo to potential leadership-focused podcast guests, get on at least one social platform, join discussions on your sector's climate potential, Follow folks you'd like to help get better known. Amplify the articles of the journalists doing good work and cheer on what your peers, even competitors, are up to. It all helps collective climate leadership gain momentum. Identifying building and leveraging your leadership is something few may feel prepared to do, but climate influence can't wait. If your organization is ready to make the shift, reach out to me, I'd love to help. Find me at www.learnedon.com. I'm also easy to find on Twitter, until it is no more, and LinkedIn. Living Change is produced by Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media. Thank you to everyone sending positive feedback and giving us ratings and reviews. They've been amazing. You have no idea how much that helps get this podcast on the radar of leaders who want to practice Living Change. So your ratings and reviews actually have their own climate influence. That's a wrap on season one. I hope you've enjoyed it. Did you have a favorite guest or topic? Let me know. Until next season, pedal safely. One last thing. As we prep for season two, I wanted to share that Jeremy Goldberg, Microsoft's worldwide director of critical infrastructure, and I will be talking this summer. And his podcast, The Future of Infrastructure, explores the humanity behind today's infrastructure projects through conversations with dynamic leaders getting stuff done. Jeremy talks with public servants, philanthropists, artists, and placemakers who are dedicated to the public interest. Sounds like a show that lines up nicely with what Living Change is amplifying on climate action leadership, doesn't it? Listen to the future of infrastructure to learn about building things and planning for the future while putting people first. Jeremy and I will share our conversation via our social channels.